listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting yet, my name is Zach. I am the youth pastor here at DCC, and I am excited to have the opportunity to get to conclude our series on the missing piece this morning. Over the last four weeks, I feel like we've seen an all-star hitting list of, of great communicators and preachers. Uh, today, I'm sorry to tell you, you get the bat boy. Um, have you guys enjoyed this series so far? Oh, come on. We can do better than that. Have you enjoyed this series so far? Well, in 2010, I had a unique opportunity. I had the chance to go and study in Israel for five weeks. Um, It was a program that was through my school, Southeastern University. It was a study abroad program that was started by Dr. Mark Rutland, who if you attended our marriage conference this year, you're familiar with Dr. Rutland. And I'm just so thankful for the passion that he had and the foresight to give students the opportunity to go and study in Israel, because as you can imagine, that was a life-changing experience for me. Um, I, I see the Bible and I interpret it and, and, and just I, I look at it through a different lens now because of the opportunity that I had to go and study over there and see all of those locations that we read about on a weekly basis. Uh, We traveled a lot for five weeks. We covered from the north to the south, and we saw as many things, as many places as we could while we were there. But we had some fun while we were there as well. And one of my favorite um, activities that we got to do was one night, we spent the night in a Bedouin camp in the desert in southern Israel. It was this big open air tent. We got to spend the night. It was incredible, beautiful scenery. And then we had the chance to ride camels through the desert. And that was pretty cool. I decided to ride my camel backwards. Um, You might ask, why would you ride a camel backwards? And I would ask you, why wouldn't you ride a camel backwards? Uh, I think that puts me in a pretty small category of people who can say they've ridden a camel backwards in the the desert of Israel. Um, But... I learned more than that. I got to sharpen some skills other than just riding camels while I was there. I got pretty good at negotiating. Um, There's a lot of street vendors in Jerusalem. And one of the things that they told us before we ever left the United States was, hey, uh, there's going to be a lot of people that come up to you and try to sell you things. They know that you're a tourist. And they have set the prices intentionally high. They give you the tourist price because they know they can make more money off of you. And it's fine if you want to buy some souvenirs while you're there, that's no problem. But we would encourage you to try to negotiate the price a little bit, uh, haggle with them some, uh, just so that you're getting a fair deal. And at first, that was difficult. Um, I am not a natural negotiator. Some people just have, it's like a spiritual gift they have to haggle price, right? That's not me. But over that five weeks, we got better at it. And we actually, it almost became like this little challenge within our group of students of who could get the best deal on something. And so let me share, if you're not a good negotiator, let me share a little piece of advice. This is free. It has nothing to do with the sermon this morning, but I just feel like it might help somebody out today. Um, If you are in a situation where you're having to negotiate, you have to be willing to walk away from the deal. And so, for instance, if they come to you and they say, I'll give this to you for 10 shekels, well, uh, you, might, you might offer, say, three shekels. 
Well, he's going to give you some reason as to why he can't go below eight shekels. At that point, you have to be able to walk away. You've got to be willing to walk away from him and go to the tent next to him because nine out of ten times what's going to happen is he's going to follow you over. He's going to say, no, 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 come back, come back, come back. I'll give it to you for six. And so that is how you negotiate. Um, but one of my absolute favorite things that we got to do while we were there was for five weeks, once a week, we got to experience Sabbath in Jerusalem. And that was a unique experience because Jerusalem is a city of almost 900,000 people. And every week, once a week, on Saturday, everything comes to a halt. Now, their day does not start when ours does at midnight. Their day starts at sundown. So at sundown on Friday, everything starts to transition. There's no more traffic on the roads. The sidewalks empty of people. Every shop and restaurant closes down. And all of those nagging street vendors, they go home. And most of Jerusalem becomes a ghost town. It's incredible. And it was really neat for us to get to experience and just observe Sabbath in Jerusalem and occasionally we would go out, we would venture out into the city on Sabbath. We would try to do it courteously and not, not make a lot of noise or anything like that. But we like to go out because we got to see Jerusalem in a new light because there's no traffic, there's no people around bothering you, and you just get to kind of wander around. And that's how we explored the city and we learned our way around. It was incredible. And then slowly, as the sun sets on Saturday... Sabbath comes to an end, and the peace is disturbed, and the city begins to come back to life. Now, church, we've been in a season of rest. Hopefully, it's been peaceful for you. But now the sun is beginning to set on our season of Sabbath, and soon it's going to be time for us to go back to work. And if you have your Bibles this morning, if you will, turn with me to uh, James chapter 2. As you're turning there, I'd like to give you a little bit of background on this letter that James wrote. And I feel like this is going to be important. It's going to come into play later for us. Scholars believe that this letter was probably the first book written in the New Testament. Somewhere around 10 to 12 years after Jesus was crucified and resurrected. And so the author, James, is actually the half-brother of Jesus. And he is the, the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And throughout this letter, James makes about 15 references to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So let's start reading chapter 2 in verse, uh, verse number 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Now, this is a very challenging passage of Scripture. 
For many believers, there is this perceived dichotomy between faith and works, a, a separation, if you will, almost as if it's they're in opposition to one another. Because on the one hand, you have the Apostle Paul who is telling us that, that we are saved, we are justified by faith alone. And then it seems almost as if James might be saying something contrary to that. That faith in isolation is dead. It's lifeless. It's unmoving. And that we also need to have good works. And so this has caused huge debates within some circles of Christianity. And at first glance, admittedly, this passage seems like it could be a contradiction to what the Apostle Paul taught. But is that really the case? Are good works important to the life of a Christian, or is faith really all that matters? And I think that whenever people try to make this argument of opposition, that, that faith and works can't uh, coexist together, they're, they're only looking at part of the picture. They're oftentimes only taking a verse and trying to build their argument around one verse, but they're not looking at the bigger picture of the entirety of the book or even that chapter. And so even though uh, he spends a lot of time teaching theology, Paul never stops short of calling believers into action. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he says it this way. He says, we will all be rewarded according to our labor. He doesn't say success. He says our diligence in labor. Because that's what stops us sometimes, right? We're so worried about what the outcome will be that it prevents us from ever taking the first step. Well, what if I fail? What if I look like a fool? What if I reach out to that person and it offends them? Or what if I say something to that family member and it messes up our relationship? But, but God is telling us that that is not our job description. Our job description is to be faithful in the labor. And if you read further into that same chapter, Paul talks about how one plants the seed, another waters, and it is God who brings growth. God who brings the harvest. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 10, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And when Paul says here that we are created in Christ, he's referring to the born again believer, those that are already living a life, a new life in Jesus. And those works, those good works, should be an inseparable characteristic of the regenerated life. So you see, Paul and James are actually in complete agreement with one another. They don't, they don't contradict, but rather they complement one another's teaching. That we are saved by, we are not saved by good deeds, but we are saved for good deeds. We are not saved by good deeds but we are saved for good deeds. That is what we call a twin truth. What that means is you have two statements that are similar, but they're different. They, they, they're saying something different, they're similar, but they're both true. And it's very clear in Scripture that no amount of work can repay our debt of sin. 
So you can't donate enough time or money to DCC to repay that penalty of sin. And Paul's emphasis is on that first truth, that we're not saved by our deeds. And then James comes along and his focus is on the second truth. And there's a simple explanation for this. They have different audiences. See, the apostle Paul was an evangelist and a church planner. He was going to cities to plant churches to reach new people with the gospel that had never heard about Christ. And so he's bringing the message to these people and he's telling them, you must be saved, but you can't be saved by your works. And then on the other side of the coin, you have James, who is essentially the senior pastor of the Christian church in Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of Christianity at this point. And he's the lead pastor. And so his audience is a little bit different, okay? This, this letter was written 10 to 12 years after Jesus was crucified. So it's very likely that his audience, he's talking to Christians who have been following Christ for a decade at this point. These are mature believers. And so James is saying that our salvation in Christ Jesus should motivate us to serve the kingdom to which we belong. Now you could say it this way, that good works are not the cause, but they are the consequence of salvation. Okay? The good works that we do are not the cause of our salvation, but they are a consequence of it. And so to live out the Christian faith in its fullest form, we must embrace both faith and works together. Christianity is not something that can be either or. It is a both and. It's, works, it's work and rest. It's thought and action. It's hearing and doing. And it's faith and deeds. And so quickly, I'd like to give you two observations about work this morning. The first one is this. Sabbath rest prepares us for the work that God created us to do. Sabbath rest prepares us for the work that God created us to do. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 and 9, we have read this scripture, I think, every week of this series. But I want to look at it under a different lens this morning. This is what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But I want to focus on this part. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work. Everyone, let's look at someone and say, you shall labor. It's because God created us to work. There is a show that I came across a few weeks ago on Netflix, and it's called Awake. And it's a game show. The premise of it is that they bring these strangers together and for 24 hours, they give them a menial task to do, like counting quarters. And so for 24 hours, they're kept awake, they can't rest, and they're just counting quarters, counting quarters. At the end of that 24 hours, they're, they're measured on how many quarters did you count and how accurately did you count them. But that's not it. That's not the whole show. After they're done with this, after they've been awake for 24 hours, they bring them together and they're given a series of challenges to compete with one another. And for the most part, they're very simple tasks. Um, things like 
threading a needle or catching something. And it's surprising at how poorly each of the contestants do after they've been awake for so long. But what we learn is, is it becomes more difficult to do your job when you haven't properly rested. Your thoughts begin to get cloudy and your ability to react is diminished. And one of my favorite parts of the show is for every challenge that they do, they include a rested participant. And that participant um, goes through the challenge with them and they're measured and it shows that every single competition they go through, the rested participant does better than all of those that have been sleep deprived. So we aren't, when we aren't rested, we can't effectively work. And see, we were called to work from the beginning. If you go back to the beginning of Genesis, God gave Adam tasks and responsibilities to do. Now that changed a little bit and the context of it looked a little different once sin came into the picture. But that was always part of God's plan that we would have responsibilities and and tasks and we were created for certain purposes. And circling back to that verse in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, we are his workmanship. So you were created, you you were crafted with great skill and with purpose by the hands of God for his purpose. I think of it like a potter sitting at the wheel who continues to work the clay over and over, molding it and reshaping it until it is what he intended it to be to serve his purpose. And whatever it is that God has created each and every one of you to do, I can assure you of two things. When you fulfill that purpose, it it will glorify God and it will impact his kingdom. And if I can speak to the ladies at the FWRC for just a moment, God can use you just as much. God is still God. He created you for a purpose and he can use you. And when you find that purpose, you can impact his kingdom as well. And to live a life without disturbing the peace means that what's most important to us is a life of balance, a life of control, of safety, and, and not suffering. And if we're honest this morning, a lot of us in the room would probably say, Zach, those things don't sound so bad. I like balance. I like a balanced life. I like to be in control. I like to be safe. I am not a fan of suffering. And that's fine, but whenever that becomes the most important thing in our life, what happens is, is that it begins to create a lukewarm faith within us. And Francis Chan says it this way in his book, Crazy Love. He says, lukewarm people are moved by stories of people who do radical things for Christ, yet they do not act. They assume action is for the extreme Christians and not average ones. That lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all, of all of his followers. That convicted me so much when I read that, that lukewarm people call radical what Jesus expected of all of his followers. Now, I've been married for almost two years. Uh, most of you know my wife, Sarah. Uh, you may know her 
even better than you know me. She helps to lead worship. She's the blonde that kind of usually stands in this area over here. And I say it like that because she dances a lot during worship, like a lot. It's dangerous. She has no personal boundaries. Like there's arms going everywhere. It's, you got to fend for yourself. But when we got married, our lives became inseparable. Before we were married, we were two separate individuals with separate lives. But then when we were married, everything comes together. Everything becomes inseparable. Marriage affected every aspect of my life in a good way. I love you. When we are unified with Christ, it should impact every aspect of our life. And if you're compartmentalizing your faith, if, you're, if it doesn't reach into every aspect of your life, into your, into your job, into your friend group, into your family, then I think that that is what James is trying to warn us of here. He's saying that a dead faith can be compartmentalized. A dead faith is paralyzed. But a living faith can't be separated and it must be in action. And then the second point I'd like to give you this morning, second observation is this. Works don't save you, but they do point to a living faith. Works don't save you, but they do point to a living faith. Jesus himself warns us of this. In Matthew chapter 7, this is the, near the end of his sermon on the mount. And he's, he's warning us that works can't save you. And he says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And as I read those words, those are some of the, the most hopeless and the most sad words that you can find in all of Scripture when Jesus says, I never knew you. And our righteousness, those good works that, that we think they do something, they're like dirty, bloody, filthy rags that are only good to be discarded. That's the only thing they're good for. I think of a diaper genie. If anyone has small children around them, you know what I'm talking about. A diaper genie is where you dispose all of the used diapers and they stay there and you do not leave the lid open on the diaper genie because after those things have been brewing for a few days, when that thing's open, that's the worst smell in the world, okay? And that's what we need for our human good works, that's where they deserve to be as in a diaper genie because they, they stink. They're filthy and there's no saving power in those good works. And yet, nevertheless, a living faith is a faith that compels us to action. James said it this way. He said, I'll show you my faith by my works. I like it because he gets a little sarcastic right here. And he says, show me your faith apart from your works. How are you gonna show me your faith without action? I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll demonstrate my faith through my works. And, and he goes on to say that, that our salvation in Christ should motivate us 
to serve the kingdom that we belong to. So I would ask you, what kingdom do you belong to? Are you serving the kingdom of the most high or are you serving the kingdom of me? And when we understand the weight of of what it means to be saved from eternal punishment, from eternal hopelessness, from eternal separation from our heavenly father, and that we've been saved from that by the work that Jesus already accomplished on the cross. When we get that in our spirit, that should burn so fiercely within us that it can't be stopped that it can't be compartmentalized to one small section of our life and that it cannot be quieted. So our works can't save us, but they do point to a living faith. As a kid, I remember spending summers at at my granny's house. See, we didn't have uh, cable at our home, so we got three channels with the rabbit ears. And anyone under 25 is like, what are you talking about? What is rabbit ears? But we got three channels, four on a good day if the weather was cooperating, but usually it was just three. But my granny had cable. And so during the summer, my brother and I, we would always go to her house and we would spend the day there and we would catch up on all the reruns of those classic TV shows like Magnum P.I., Um, Knight Rider, MacGyver, and Granny had an endless supply of honey buns and Mountain Dew. Hallelujah. Life was good. And I remember that when we would watch uh, TV at her house on cable, they had this thing called Christmas in July, where they would show all of the classic Christmas movies and cartoons for a week. It was kind of like Shark Week, but it was for Christmas Uh, where are my people in the room that love Christmas? You can't get enough of it. You've already started the countdown, right? 147 days, you know what I'm talking about. You love the music, the movies, it doesn't matter. That week was made for us and it's never too soon. It can be 100 degrees, you're cruising down the road listening to Santa Looks a Lot Like Daddy. And that's my favorite one, by the way. And then there are those people, some of you in the room, who have a hard and fast rule that Christmas music is not allowed until after Thanksgiving. Where are those people at? They will give you a prepared lecture. They keep it on them at all times. It's laminated. Like they're serious about it. And if that's you, Don't worry, we will have the prayer team down front today to pray out that Grinch spirit you have. I'm just kidding, kind of. Now that I've lost half of the room, is it okay if we have a little Christmas in July? Is that okay? So I'm almost done here. I want to share one more story and, and one more thought with you, and then we'll close Maybe we'll do Frosty the Snowman or something today. But I want to share the story of Jesus' birth with us. We're going to start in Luke chapter 2, verse 6. And it says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son 
and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you that you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Jesus disturbed the peace of that silent night in Bethlehem. He left his throne in heaven to come and live a humble life as a baby, to come into this world crying. And angels, they rejoiced from heaven. The heavenly hosts proclaimed glory to God in the highest as they announced to the shepherds the birth of the good shepherd. And as I read this story, my imagination begins to to turn through this and, and I imagine that as these, the heavens are erupting in praise, the demons of hell are shrinking back in fear. And here's, here's how I conclude this. If you look throughout all of human history, evil tyrants always will seek to destroy what they fear. And when we read this story, we know that King Herod tried to kill Jesus. He feared a baby so much that he committed genocide to try to stop him. Now, if we skip ahead 33 years, Jesus has accomplished his mission. He has given his life on the cross and he has been resurrected from the dead. And here's what he says to his disciples in John chapter 20, verse 21. This is what he says. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as the father has sent me. Even so I am sending you. Don't miss this. So Jesus, who is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's sent by the father to be God with humanity. And now Jesus is sending us in the same way, and our work is to bear the image of Christ to the world. It's no coincidence that we're called the body of Christ. And during this month of Sabbath, we've, we've rested. We've had peace. But church, the Sabbath sun is setting. And it's time for us to disturb the peace. It's time for the church to get up, to go back to work and to continue our mission. And our mission is to go and reach the lost of this world. Jesus said he came for the sick, not for the well. And so church, I'm here for the sick. And when we say that, that means that our church should not be a museum of perfection, but it needs to be a hospital for the sick. 
and I don't know about you, but if you've ever been, spent any time around a hospital, they're not always a peaceful place. They can be chaotic and they're full of people that need healing and restoration. And God has given us this life-saving antidote for a lost world. But we can't just stay within these walls and continue to inoculate ourselves and minister to ourselves every week in and out. We have to be willing to go out to the masses, to Newberry, to Trenton, to our communities around us, to the FWRC, and share the good news, the gospel. We have to go and share the gospel in our homes. Moms and dads, your home is the first mission field. Your children need to see you living out the gospel. Don't wait for them to just come and hear it here once a week. It's time for us to cry out and break the silence with the truth of the gospel, that God offers this life-saving antidote, that he can rescue us from our sin and from our brokenness. And as as we say that, it sounds a lot like that message that the angel brought to those shepherds. Fear not, for I bring you good news of great joy. That is for everyone. It's for all of people. We have a savior. And the good work that we do should always point back to that. As, as Christ followers, the deeds that we do, they don't mean anything in and of themselves. But whenever we point back to that truth, they're redeemed and they mean something then. And so I have a testimony to share that I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And, and God's grace was sufficient for me. And if there's anyone in the room today that you feel like you're too far, that you've wandered too far away, you've done too much, God's grace is sufficient for you. So let's disturb the peace and let's fulfill the work that we've been called to. Because when we do that, not only will we be glorifying the king of the universe, but we will find fulfillment in our life as we impact his kingdom. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.